feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is the Rita Cosby Show. on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we are at... Breaking news. And there it is, a generic breaking news, because tonight, and of course, Russia-Ukraine is a big story. It always is here on the Rita Cosby Show. But tonight, we are talking about the primary races taking place in seven different states all over the country. The big one to watch, because the polls have just closed in the state of California is Chesa Boudin, who is the San Francisco district attorney, the child of weather underground members, far, 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 far left district attorney. And a lot of people blame the soft on crime policies and the deterioration, particularly of cities across the country, but especially, of course, San Francisco, where there is an abundance of drugs and homeless and a lot of things. And people put it squarely at the lap of Chesa Boudin, a recall vote taking place tonight. And as soon as we get results, should they come in during the show, we will bring them to you immediately. And also any other surprises that are coming from the primaries. It's another big primary night in the country and any big surprises or anything else we will bring that to you but everybody of course is watching to see could potentially one of the softest on crime DAs in the country like you see also in Philly and LA and of course New York City amongst many many others Chesa Boudin there is an actual vote tonight that could actually boot him from office And a lot of Californians, like Caitlyn Jenner, say it is about time. She says that a lot of the problems that exist in California go squarely at this DA's lap. Take a listen. Uh, He is really to blame for the city's crime, drug, homelessness. Um, He's pretty much legalized drugs. Uh, During the campaign, I was up in San Francisco for a couple of days, and Um, I stood there on the street and watched on the other side of the street, probably 40 people all leaned up, sitting down, leaned up against the wall. There was a drug deal going over on the on the right hand side. There was a drug deal going on. You could see the money being passed. You could see the drugs changing hands. There was one guy on the street that was actually shooting up while I'm there. Half the other ones were passed out and there wasn't one law enforcement. There was nothing going on. And Bodine is the one directly responsible for trying to clean that city up. And he has not cleaned it up. And again, we're waiting to see. The polls have literally just closed a few minutes ago. And as soon as we find out, because this could be starting a nationwide trend. Of course, you know, California, heavy Democratic, San Francisco, like the beacon of Democratic voters. So the fact that they got enough votes, actually, and enough petition signatures to get it onto the ballot to actually vote them off is astounding in a city that is so heavily Democratic. It means that maybe Democrats have had enough also of these soft on crime policies and these revolving doors, and it could set a standard of how to remove 
other soft on crime DAs around the country. That's why a lot of people are watching that. And as soon as we get results on that, we will let you know. Well, today, speaking of celebrities, we just played Caitlyn Jenner. It was a day for all right, all right, all right, Matthew McConaughey going to the White House. And I want to hear your thoughts on the Rita Cosby show, what you thought of Matthew McConaughey. I'll just tell you personally, I've actually always been quite impressed with him. He's a huge supporter of the military. He seems to be sort of middle of the road. You almost can't really tell like where he is on the political aisle. And I thought actually today he sounded much more emotional, much more compassionate, much more, I thought, connecting than I've ever seen Joe Biden talk about gun control. I mean, I thought he was 20 times more effective for the issue of gun reform. We'll get into his policies in a moment. But I thought in terms of his delivery, at least he was human. He didn't sound like he was reading these sort of canned statements. Every time I see Joe Biden reading, it's like uh, sentence number one says, I should say this, and uh, I shouldn't talk to this reporter, and I shouldn't do this, and I shouldn't do that. Joe Biden just seems like a walking DNC robot. And even right after the Uvalde shooting that happened, that was so horrible, the mass shooting at that school, you know, Joe Biden just went right to his DNC talking points. I thought he sounded just horrible and political. And I also thought it's a pretty sad testament to this president that they had to bring out Matthew McConaughey to be the messenger, because guess what? The president sucks. So there was no way. He stinks. So they had to bring out somebody else to be the messenger of this because this president can't communicate. So I want to hear your thoughts on why you think the White House brought out McConaughey. Do you think he was effective in his message? And do you think his message about basically finding common ground? He didn't really condemn Gun owners, which was refreshing to see because this White House seems to go guns, 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 goes after gun manufacturers, gun owners. They say the Second Amendment is an absolute. At least today, Matthew McConaughey talked about gun responsibility. And he said, listen, I've been talking to both sides. Um, I've been talking to a lot of gun owners who just want to make sure that the guns are in the right hands. He didn't talk about surrendering your guns. So I actually thought he came across pretty reasonable, pretty effective, and I thought extraordinarily emotional. Take a listen. Here's one part where he talked about, because he is from Uvalde, he was born, he was raised there in Uvalde, Texas, and he said soon after that shooting happened, soon afterwards he was in Uvalde comforting and meeting with the families because this mass shooting hit so close to home. Take a listen. Ryan and Jessica Ramirez, their 10-year-old daughter, Alethea. She was one of the 19 children that were killed the day before. Now, Alethea, her dream was to go to art school in Paris and one day share her art with the world. Ryan and Jessica were eager to share Alethea's art with us and said if we could share it, that somehow, maybe that would make Aletha smile in heaven. They told us that showing someone else Aletha's art would in some way keep her alive. Now this particular drawing is a uh, is a self-portrait all right, of, of Aletha drawing with her friend in heaven, 
looking down on her, drawing the very same picture. Her mother said uh, of this drawing, she, she said, you know, we never really talked to her about heaven before, but somehow she knew. Letha was 10 years old. Wow. I, I thought that was really powerful and deeply sincere. And then I think one of the most dramatic moments was when he talked about the green Converse sneakers. His wife was with him. Matthew McConaughey's wife was there. And she had the actual green Converse sneakers with her and showed them in the White House briefing room. Take a listen. We also met Anna and Danilo, the mom and the stepdad of nine-year-old Maite Rodriguez. And Maite wanted to be a marine biologist. She was already in contact with Corpus Christi University of A&M for her future college enrollment. Nine years old. Maite cared for the environment so strongly that when the city asked her mother if they could release some balloons into the sky in her memory, her mom said, oh, no, Maite wouldn't want to litter. Maite wore green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Camilla's got these shoes. Can you show these shoes, please? Wore these every day. Green Converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green Converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. Wow. I I thought that was just a really powerful and emotional moment and a moment that I think anybody watching could connect with. Not political just talking about the tragic loss of life in his hometown and how moving it was for him. And then he got into some of the specifics where he talked about background checks, raising the age for assault rifles from 18 to 21, implementing a national waiting period for assault rifles, also talking about red flag laws, talking about mental history, And he said, listen, I'm not talking about revoking the Second Amendment. He seems to have a lot of friends who are gun owners, and he seems to understand that. So I liked that part of him. I felt like he kind of was trying to find common ground. And this is what he said gun owners tell him. Responsible gun owners are fed up with the Second Amendment being abused and hijacked by some deranged individuals. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and and the Second Amendment. So what do you think of Matthew McConaughey's message? First of all, from a delivery standpoint, I thought it seemed sincere. I thought it was passionate. And I thought it was very heartfelt. So I thought that was great. Um, in terms of what he's talking about. Raising the age, the red flags, uh, the mental health. I think there's probably some common ground in there. The question is, do you agree with that? Do you think there's common ground in there? He said, listen, far right and far left, you know, everybody has to figure out the common ground. And he thinks that there are more people in the common ground in the middle with what he's talking about than those who are on both sides of the fringe. Do you agree? It's 1-800-848-9222. 
1-800-848-9222. Well, my buddy Judge Janine Pirro said that she gave McConaughey an A+. Take a listen. I think it was delivered brilliantly. What he did was he had both the intellectual as well as the emotional pieces combined. He did it in a way, and I questioned what he was doing in the White House briefing room. I really did. But then I realized he did it better than anyone from Congress or certainly the president of the United States could do. And he presented things to make everyone feel that they were vested in this. And former member of Congress, Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Democrat, but usually seems more like a Republican, had this to say about McConaughey. He's a sincere person. You know, he genuinely cares about our country, cares about the American people. And so I think this message was delivered in that in that spirit. And I hope it's received in that way as well. And he's I completely agree. We do have to come together as a country. And I think there is common ground that can be had uh, where I think we all want to make sure that criminals and those who shouldn't have their hands on guns don't and that we do not in any way undermine our Second Amendment rights. The, the those uh, law abiding American citizens who own guns should not see their guns taken away. So did he sort of spark any national dialogue or was it just all big one big show for a really good actor? And he certainly is that. So what do you think? 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. I will say it was refreshing to see somebody from the podium just sort of speak from the heart. Because half the time, I can't tell if they're doing that on the White House press secretary. And when the president's up there, he's looking at his notes because he can't speak extemporaneously. So it was nice to see someone who could actually speak. That was refreshing. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Phil on line two. Phil, your thoughts about Matthew McConaughey. What did you think, Phil? Well, I'll tell you the truth. This is an interesting observation here. The government, the Democrats, that is, uh, under Biden, have, have realized that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's got a lousy way of coming across. So what they do is they gently either arm twist a few people who have government jobs, such as Janet Yellen, uh, who came up with this 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 tearjerker, uh, old, old, 95-year-old lady, grandmotherly type thing about uh, babies, uh, about abortion, and so on. Now they've, they've gone further. They, they get this guy, McConaughey, and you got him, uh, and he's, he's playing this large violin. I mean, you know, I understand that we have to remember these kids and, and, the, and the, the sadness of the event. But the point is, he sounds more like a preacher than he does someone who's got a very balanced opinion. Although, on although hand, Phil, on one hand, I didn't know he was from Uvalde until I saw it a couple of days ago because he wrote like an op-ed. Um, so well, this was his hometown. And, and it's not like Uvalde is a metropolis. If I grew up in Uvalde, I would feel I'm, a, I'm a passionate about it as an American. Uh, but I'd feel like 5,000 times more passionate if it was my hometown. You kidding me? I'd be out there. I would have been there day one at the White House. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But the problem is, is that, you know, if you're going to memorialize a, a thing like that, it, it's, it's with the sneakers and the, and the drawings. I understand that. Okay, that's that's a beautiful thing. But at the same time, 
What I what I want to know is you have about 45, 50 million kids out there in this country of about that age, maybe maybe 35 million, say. And what about them? I want to know what what does he feel about them? He never brought up the thing to say we need armed guards in school. We need to protect these children with a safe room they can run to in case a maniac goes in the building. No, by the, and, and by whole- the way, Phil, I did see that too. The one thing he did say um, was he did say talking about extra protection in school. They didn't really go into the area of what that means. Does it mean, like you just said, a safe room? Does it mean like armed guards? Does it mean all these things uh, that I think you and I both agree should be in there? Uh, I don't know. I'd be curious to see. Um, He may be supportive of that because he sort of seemed like he kind of stretches both sides, or at least he was playing that today. Um, you know, trying to be conciliator in chief, if you will, at the White House, you know. Um, but you're right. He didn't get into the other thing I would have loved to have seen him do, Phil, was get into the bail reform, get him get into the revolving door of criminals. You know, the fear of God. He talked about sort of the whole mental climate and mental health and red flags and all that. But I sure as heck would have loved for him to say, you know what? And while we're at it, criminals can't get a free pass. That would have been refreshing, too. So, yeah, there were a number of things missing uh, that you and I both noticed. We're going to continue with your calls, everybody. one 800 848 What do you think of Matthew McConaughey? Was he all right, all right, all right? Or was there something missing? one 800 It's the Rita Cosby Show. see Matthew McConaughey rocking to this kind of music, but of course we know him best for this phrase. All right, all right, all right. And all right, he was at the White House all right today, and he definitely made a splash. I thought he was an effective communicator, and he didn't seem to be kind of leaning one way or the other, just said that America needs to come together because his hometown of Uvalde was devastated, needless to say, as America and the world was after the shooting. And Greg Gutfeld on Fox News had this to say about McConaughey's performance. He can bounce from church to church and people pretty much go, oh, he's a movie star. He's a movie star. But he's not he's rare and that he actually like the, he's not like a guy who tweets on Twitter or something when it happens. Like you can tell hopes and prayers to go to hell. He actually goes does the homework. And that's why you can trust him. Yeah, I thought he was quite effective, guys. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Valerie, line six. Val, your thoughts about all this. Hi, Rita. Love your show. Listen all the time. Thank you. I think Matthew McConaughey was sincere. He might have missed a few points that are important, but he's not a politician. He, he's a person. This is was his hometown. It's not my hometown. And 19 children, it's devastating that they were killed in the manner that they were killed. I don't think, and I am a gun owner, and I do believe in, in the Second Amendment, but I don't believe a 17-year-old needs to carry an assault weapon. So uh, I'm with everybody. Raise the, raise the age to 21. And we do have to come together. Um, as far as safe rooms, I work in a school. 
kids aren't going to get to a safe room. Every room's got to be a safe room in one way or another. And every school needs a police officer. Yeah, 1,000%. Val, I am with you, too. I agree with you. Um, I think you make some terrific points. Let's go to Alex real quick. Line two. Alex, your thoughts. Go ahead. Hey, Rita, what's doing? Uh, Thanks for taking the call here. I host a show called First Class Fatherhood. I actually did an interview with Matthew McConaughey. He came on the show a few months back, and we really dug in to the fatherless crisis that's going on in our country. And I was hoping to hear a little bit more out of him from that today, uh, because being that the shooter in this incident came from a fatherless household. And if you look, Rita, gun ownership, the percentage of gun ownership in the United States, hasn't changed in the last 50 years. It's hovering around 42, 43%. Hey, Alex, do me me a favor, Alex. Stay with us. We're going to go to a break. I know exactly who you are and would love to have you talk more about your interview with him. Stay with us. Rita Cosby is on. The Rita Cosby Show presents Back the Blue. And in tonight's Back the Blue segment, which I love doing, where we honor our men and women in law enforcement, a powerful story and a sad story coming from New York, where an FBI official who responded to the 9-11 terrorist attacks has died from cancer that he developed after exposure to Ground Zero. Supervisory Police Officer UTAC Lewis Tao died recently after serving with the FBI for 25 years. Tao was stationed at the Bureau's New York field office when planes hit the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2021. Well, instinctively, he simply, uh, or actually 2001, instinctively, he simply rushed to the elevator, made it down the lobby, and ran as fast as he could toward the Twin Towers and the people that he knew needed help. That's according to a statement from Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI. He tried to take cover as debris rained down metal pipes, jet fuel. He later described it as something like a war zone. Tao was described as a respected worker known for his spirit, his enthusiasm, and his dedication. And FBI Director Christopher Ray further said, with each year that passes, we lose more of the brave men and women who instinctively ran toward danger that fateful day, including many too many members of our FBI family. By the way, the uniform that Tao wore on 9-11 is, a permanent, is on permanent display at the Bureau's police office headquarters. Uh, and he is survived by his wife, sisters, and also a stepdaughter. So, of course, our thoughts and prayers are to him and all the courageous people who ran toward the towers on 9-11 and, of course, their families. I love being able to honor our great law enforcement and, of course, all first responders. And that's what our Back the Blue segment is always all about. Well, we are talking about Matthew McConaughey, the actor who went to the White House today, and everybody was like, whoa, 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 this was an interesting White House briefing. They've been sometimes pulling out different people. Or they had K-pop. Remember, they had the uh, Korean band there. That was a little weird, talking about, like, uh, Asian hate crimes. Uh, I mean, obviously, they're Asian, but I would have sort of thought they'd have somebody American talking about Asian hate crimes in America. But they brought out K-pop. I wish they would have danced a little bit because they're really good. Um, But we did get Matthew McConaughey today, and it was a serious topic. It was about Uvalde. And one thing I will say about Matthew McConaughey, um, 
I, and I've seen him on a whole bunch of different issues. He always tries to kind of find unifying middle ground. And that's what he said he wants to do now with gun reform because he's from Uvalde. This is where he was born. This is where he was raised. He said almost hours after the shooting, he rushed there to Uvalde that some of the people there called him and he went and met with families. I mean, I do believe he is sincere. And he believes that this is a different moment. Of course, a lot of people have talked about gun reform in different shapes or forms for the last few decades. But he thinks things have gotten so bad and the shooting was so horrible, as well as obviously Buffalo. And, of course, at the Tulsa Hospital, there have been a lot of these different cases of late. But he thinks this is a moment. Take a listen to Matthew McConaughey talking about that. How can a loss of these lives matter? So while we honor and acknowledge the victims, we, we need to recognize that this time it seems that something is different. There is a sense that perhaps there's a viable path forward. Responsible parties in this debate seem to at least be committed to sitting down and having a real conversation about a new and improved path forward. And at least to his credit. I mean, when you listen to the Democrats, it's like, uh, we're going to go after gun owners. We're going to go after gun makers. Uh, they don't say anything about protection in school or a lot of these other issues or mental health or a lot of these other issues that all need to be woven in with this. At least he said he talks to a lot of buddies and people that he knows that are gun owners. Take a listen. Look, we heard from, we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, Border Patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. And what do you think he means by secure and safe schools? That could mean, hey, let's get armed guards. That could mean separate switches, extra locks on doors. I mean... I thought that was interesting. I wish reporters in the room would have followed up and said, hey, what do you mean by this? What do you think about that? Um, A lot of them didn't because they were just so enamored with, uh, you know, the Dallas Buyers Club, you know, but all that, although that was a good movie. Um, But this is what he had to say also. And I like this point. And I'm going to go back to Alex in a second because Alex does a great podcast on fatherhood. He did get into sort of the broken families that are existing in America and how that is playing a role with a lot of these disturbed kids that are doing these heinous, horrible acts. Take a listen. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. And... We need responsible gun ownership, responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. There's a lot of that that I agree with, too. What do you think, everybody? one 800 848 Let's go back to Alex on line two, because, Alex, uh, you also did an interview with McConaughey. He did touch on a little bit of the family values, but I want to hear your thoughts more on that, Alex, because we had a heartbreak before. Sorry about that. 
Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Rita. And, and yeah, I really wish he would have leaned into that, being that this shooter was from a fatherless household, because it is an epidemic, and he described it as such when he came on First Class Fatherhood. Uh, it's an epidemic. It's at the center of all these issues we're having. We're trying to solve all these other issues here, Rita. You know, we got the shootings, you got homelessness, drug use, teenage pregnancy, all of them at the center point is the fatherless crisis. It correlates to all of this. And as I was saying right before the break, gun ownership, the percentage of people that own guns in the country is the same over the last 50 years. You're talking about 42, 43%. If you look at the fatherlessness going on, it went from 9% to 25%. It almost tripled in that same amount of time. It's not having fathers in the home that is, the, that is the, at the epicenter of all these troubles. And isn't it interesting too, Rita, that we're talking about uh, raising the gun age now to 21, yet you can pick your gender in middle school. Isn't that fascinating? Well, you know, you bring up some great points because you're right. It's like, um, you know, they're they're pushing certain things. And the one thing that I just said also, Alex, too, is that we need discussions about repeat offenders, too, because no matter the age and there was a case uh, that's been making a lot of headlines. You may have seen it was a hit and run in Los Angeles. Uh, George Gaskell and the old soft on crime D.A. there. Um, basically gave the guy summer camp, you know, essentially it's like a juvie camp for five months. And he's had a felony in his background. He's kind of giving a pass after a pass after a pass. Um, No reference to sort of making young people aware, young and old, aware that there will be serious punishments. I liked when he said about red flag, if you abuse the red flag law, there will be serious repercussions. But I would have loved to have heard him say or even reporters ask him, because maybe he would have said this had he been asked, um, you know, what do you make of the fact of this revolving door of justice? Because I think a lot of people think they can just get away with a lot of these serious crimes. And also, the, the, the issue of mental health, you see it. You see, like, it's like this progression, Alex. And it's like the Bill Bratton theory in New York was always go after the broken windows, the smaller crimes, stop them there, let them know they're going to pay a price if they do something small. Because then if they keep going, then they really know the real the brick is going to really get thrown at them. You know, it's it is serious, and that causes a preventative measure. I didn't hear anything about this revolving door because until you let people know that there will be serious repercussions and you put the fear of death in them that they shouldn't even think of getting a, quote, gun illegally or they shouldn't think no matter where what kind of household they come from. And I agree with you that, you know, that a lot of it is broken families, no role models. Um, in this guy's case, he had, a, a, according to reports, a drug addict a father, I think, or mother. Uh, he was with his grandmother, and he was fighting with her, obviously. He shot her, remember? He shot her in the face uh, before he went to the school. So there's obviously a lot of family issues. There's no question about that. Um, but also yeah. this revolving door, Alex, it has to be there's a lot of layers to this that that need to – and somebody who tells them. I mean, I'll tell you a story. Alex, I don't remember – you know, I was a bit of a brat growing up, but my father gave me tough love, you know, and I remember it. You know what I mean? And, I, and my, you know, that, you know? That, that discipline portion is important, Rita. That's it. Wait till your father gets home. That, that's an important part of growing up. Yeah, it was like, oh, boy, I'm not going to do that again. You know what I mean? And and but but that kind at least it was a good value, you know, and and you're right. Unless you have somebody supervising and telling you. Um, and if it's not them, it should be the legal justice system. If you don't have a, you know, a parent at home who's doing it, somebody's got to do it, right? 
There's no doubt. And why are we trying to create more laws when we can just enforce the ones we already have? They're not doing it. You know, with the Alvin Bragg, the whole bit. But one other interesting point here, too, Rita, is Matthew McConaughey is known for what? Being a Hollywood celebrity actor. I would have loved to have seen him take a stand and say, you know what, today I'm taking a strong stand that I will never be in another movie that has a gun or gun violence. I will no longer promote it, and I call on my other Hollywood counterparts to do the same. Let's get rid of guns in Hollywood, and let's show that we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're no longer going to take another nickel from promoting gun violence in our films. That's a great point. That would have been a brilliant move that I was so moved by what I saw And I'm encouraging the rest of the industry. You're right. He could lead the charge on that. Um, Let's see. Let's see what happens. Alex, great. It was wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much, Alex, to get your perspective. Let's go to Jeff. Uh, Line six. Jeff, your thoughts about all this. Hi, thanks. Um, Yeah, you know, I'm just saying kids are like popcorn. You know what I'm saying? Popcorn pops at the same temperature, but not all the popcorn does, right? So there's different kids. Is that like life? So is that kind of like life's a box of chocolates? Is that where you're going? Sort of the. the... No, I'm just saying that there's different. You know, that these these politicians that are up there yelling, oh the AR, the AR, oh they, they have they've never been in the woods. They probably never held an AR. They know nothing about an AR. So if you're going to ban an AR, then ban a Titleist three wood. Because what I can hit a green with a Titleist three wood. There's more people on the golf course you can get killed with that shouldn't be out there that should keep their drivers at home. Now, what I'm trying to say is this, this, this grandpas back in the day, they don't land upstate. How many kids I grew up with in Long Island, and I'm talking a lot of kids in the cafeteria all told stories that they went up to their grandfathers with their father, they learned how to hunt, and, and they always hunted. And you always knew the certain kids, and there was a lot of them. There was a lot of different kids since we were young. Now, let, let me ask you, Jeff. Guns. Jeff, and, and yeah. you're right. There is a different culture depending what part of the country. Um, you know, I went to school in the South, and I've spent a lot of time all over America. And I spent a lot of time in Texas where there's a lot of guns. But they were people who were responsible with it. Did you feel that they were responsible, at least the people, and, and respected it and kept it out of touch of somebody who was not qualified to have it? No, these kids were the kind of kids that went home and cut lawns and, like, helped the neighbor. Like, these kids were, like, good kids. Like, you're like, wow. I wasn't jealous, but I was kind of like, wow. Like, that's pretty cool. You go up and sit in the woods and hunt and they would tell a story. Yeah, there's a lot of kids like that. So Absolutely. And, and by the way, Jeff, Jeff, you're right. That's a, it's a way of life in a lot of parts of this country. You know, it is. And, and you know, I have friends all over the place where they are responsible, they'll show it to a kid, they'll make sure he learns to respect it. The key is when somebody is clearly mentally unstable, they should, I mean, do you agree? You shouldn't have access to a gun if you're if you're partially off your rocker or if you have a history of uh, criminal uh, intent or criminal plans like some of these guys did who got access. That should have been red flagged. It shouldn't just be a red flag. It should be a red neon sign. Don't you agree, Jeff? Oh, sure. Yeah, the Buffalo shooter was red flagged. A lot of these He was were red not. Flagged. He was not, Jeff. And that was the problem. He should have been they red were, flagged. They, they had they, him on they, the radar. Didn't they have him on the radar? They, in they, Florida. Didn't they have the other guy on the radar? What, so who's dropping the ball? Well, and they go out you. And these young kids that are behaving themselves. Yep. I just want to make a point, Ms. Rita, because, like, you wouldn't rent that car, right? You wouldn't rent the car to somebody that looked, like, really drunk, right? Right, but the you problem know, is a lot of times they don't look that way. They go in, they clean themselves up, 
You know, you're right. If it's somebody's a parent, yeah, you know, nobody should be selling it to somebody who is obviously, uh, you know, drunk or or has a record or any of those other things. I think you got to throw the book at anybody who sells it to somebody like that or gives it to somebody like that. Um, but the problem is in the case, I'll tell you, in Buffalo, the authorities went and met with the guy, met with him like about a year before. And he was talking about, you know, shooting up uh, places and had violent thoughts and all that stuff. And they met with him. They actually, I think he was also tested in a mental uh, hospital for like about 36 hours. And then he was released and they didn't put anything in his record because he's a juvenile or just didn't go through the system. And that's where I think if it's a, even if it's a juvenile, I don't care. If you are a violent individual, you need to be flagged. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. You're awesome. Thank you. Let's go to Mitch in uh, Pennsylvania, Line 7. Go ahead, Mitch, your thoughts. Yeah, I love being on the very colorful WABC. I love what you guys have done with this station. Thank you very much, Mitch. Thank you. Thank you. And by the way, the show was heard around the country, based out of ABC, the very colorful, awesome WABC. But go ahead, Mitch. Thank you. All right, well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't ever hear anybody bring this up. Wasn't a door left unlocked at that school, and couldn't that have prevented it? Oh, absolutely. By the way, a door was supposed to automatically close after the teacher put something in it, you know, to kind of go get her cell phone, came back, closed the door, and it didn't automatically lock like it was supposed to. So, yes, on the other hand, maybe you could have broken through the glass or done something else because there may have been another way to get in. But it certainly would have made it a lot more difficult as opposed to just opening the door and, oh, it's open. Uh, so you're right. I mean, there there are so many layers to this that are even unrelated to guns. Uh, that also adding guards there. Remember, they said there was a school resource officer nowhere to be found. It turned out that was a myth. He wasn't even on the scene. He just drove by the shooter. So there were a lot of mistakes made in here. And that's why I think, Mitch, um, and you tell me what you think, but I think clearly a lot of Democrats are playing politics with this. It's like, let's go after the gun manufacturer when there was no resource officer, the door was unlocked, and this guy clearly was a loony kazuni who never should have gotten access to a gun. Go ahead, Mitch. Well, you see what's going on. Like, for instance, you take people that get behind the wheel of a car, and they are just idiots. Um, and many of them cause seriously bodily injury. And are we going to ban all cars? We're right. Or go after the car manufacturer. Well, that's why this whole thing about going after the gun maker, to me, is so ludicrous. And it just shows the Democrats' intent that a lot of it is a gun grab. They're using this opportunity. And I think clear as day, Mitch, more than anything, is right after the Uvalde shooting, we saw President Biden came out And he spoke about how terrible it was for about a minute. And then the next 10 were like, here's my DNC talking points. And he was already talking about going after gun manufacturers. To me, it was so inappropriate, so highly political, and to me, so abundantly transparent. And that's why, you know, there maybe are some things that need to change. And yeah, we want to make sure our kids are safe and our schools are safe. uh, But it can't be these DNC talking points. one 800 848 9222. This is the Rita Cosby Show.
And Matthew McConaughey, known for a lot of his wild roles, well, he maybe made the most sense of all on the gun debate, but who could forget some of his famous roles? Take a listen. And what has happened? Long time, no see. <laughs> That's right. What have you been up to? Same old man. Yeah? Working for the city. Working man, huh? Been thinking about getting back in school, though, man. Like in J. Sue, something like that? Yeah, man. I mean, that's where all the girls are, right? All right, all right, all right. And today, he said, you know what? After this terrible shooting in his hometown of Uvalde, Texas, both sides need to come together when he spoke at the White House. We've got to take a sober, humble, and honest look in the mirror and rebrand ourselves based on what we truly value. What we truly value we got to get some real courage and honor our immortal obligations instead of our party affiliations. Enough with the counterpunching. Enough with the invalidation of the other side. Let's come to the common table that represents the American people. Find a middle ground, the place where most of us Americans live anyway, especially on this issue. Because I promise you, uh, America, you and me, we are not as divided as we are being told we are. So is there a middle ground when you got Democrats who basically say the Second Amendment is an absolute and we're going to go after gun manufacturers? 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to JC in PA on line six. JC, your thoughts? Hey, Rita, how are you? But before I get to my basic point, Okay, Democrats, okay, as far as people killing people in the United States with guns and knives, the people, the, all the crimes in all the cities, if you put that all together, that outweighs all the people that were killed in the bad shootings by, by, by tremendous amounts. I don't see the Democrats going after guns with the killings in the cities with the gangs. Yeah, so you're right. You're the right. They, they do okay. not so mention yeah. it, J.C., and that's outrageous. You're, you're right. They are so missing, missing the mark. Let's go to Michael real quick, line seven. Michael, your thoughts real quick, Mike. Um, again, I agree with that guy, Alex, that called in about um, Hollywood's responsibility for a lot of. Oops, we lost you, Mike. Are you there? Computer games. The computer games that the kids play too are extremely violent. And yeah, it seems like they're in a they're in an alternate world. Well, and and kids. also, I think a lot of these kids, Mike, especially if they are a little off, they shouldn't have access. I think to some of these games. I think you know, for normal kids who know it's a game and can separate reality from it. But if you're a little off, why would you give your kid, uh, or if your son is, why would you give him? A violent video game. Why would you take him to the gun range? I mean, there's so many things. It does go back to a lot of responsible parenting. We're going to continue with your calls and also a stunning report on the lack of security at January 6th. Feisty, fearless, and fair. She's an Emmy-winning journalist from the White House to war zones, telling all sides of the story. This is The Rita Cosby Show. I know your name is Rita, cause your perfume is smelling sweet. Since when I saw you down on the 
And we are monitoring results in the elections that are taking place. Lots of big primaries taking place across the country. By the way, uh, Kirsty Nome and John Thune handily winning uh, their primaries um, in the Republican side. Of course, those were biggies. Um, and we'll keep you posted on a number of others that are taking place across the country. The big one that a lot of people also, uh, Grassley, by the way, uh, Dick Grassley handily winning uh, for Senate in Iowa and a number of others coming through because some of the polls are just closing. But we're, of course, all waiting to see what's going to happen in particular in California. Because the Democratic, far-left Democrat, far-left progressive, Chesa Boudin, is the DA there. And many people think his extremely soft-on-crime policies, which appear to be even softer than Alvin Bragg and some others, well, they have really led that city, sadly, into the toilet with high rates of crime and homelessness. And there was a recall. There And the vote for the recall was tonight. And as soon as we get the results of that, we will definitely let you know. Meantime, all eyes are going to be on what is going to be a big dog and pony show this week. And in prime time on a number of channels, you will be able to see the January 6th committee hearings. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on here. And in fact, they're using... The former president of ABC News basically was brought in to put some bells and whistles to it because they know they need some fireworks. They're trying to do whatever they can before the midterms. Take a listen because, of course, good old shifty Adam Schiff had this to say of what he thinks is going to come from the committee hearings. Take a listen. Our goal is to present uh, the narrative of what happened in this country, how close we came to losing our democracy, what led to that violent attack on the 6th. Uh, The American people, I think, know a great deal already. They've seen a number of bombshells already. Uh, There's a great deal they haven't seen. But perhaps most important is the public hasn't seen it uh, woven together. Well, the public hasn't seen the Democrats also condemning the riots of 2020, all 500 of them. They never really came out and condemned those, but they can't wait to talk about January 6th. And Congressman Kevin McCarthy, Republican, says this committee is a joke. Because remember what this committee is. Remember what the purpose is. First, Nancy Pelosi has broken 232-year history of the House by not allowing the minority to appoint anyone to the committee. This committee does not have 13 members as the power of the House voted for it to have. But what's even worse about this committee is it's beyond its legislative scope. You know, there are separations of powers. The House does not have criminal investigation. And speaking of investigation, our next guest just broke a huge exclusive report that came out just about an hour or so ago detailing a review of the Capitol Police security, or lack thereof, on January 6th. Something you probably won't hear from the Democrats in their dog and pony show this week. And joining us now is the great investigative reporter with The Big Scoop, John Solomon. John, great to have you here on the show. Always fun to join you, Rita. You know, John, you have a blockbuster here about what the Capitol Police found out they did what? It was an after-action report um, after the January 6th. Tell us what 
they internally discovered about their own flaws. Yeah, listen, this this gets done after the House and Senate and the Capitol Police Inspector General do their reports, which are somewhat critical of the Capitol Police Department, but don't really get into the real issues of how the Capitol got overrun so easy. Let's keep in mind the Capitol Police Force is a half-billion-dollar-a-year force. It is well-funded. It only has to protect a one-mile swath of Washington, D.C. And on January 6th, it was overrun by a group of hooligans that, you know, pretty easily. And the internal police force, it's uh, what's known as its coordination division, went out and solicited uh, feedback from 44 different components of the department. And it put together an Afton Action Report. It was in June of 2021. And by this time, Congress had finished all of its reviews of security and we're moving on to the Trump investigation you just referenced. Uh, but the, the findings in this report are far sharper, far more uh, damning of the police force and the preparation of the police force, the leadership of the police force. What sort of things did it find? What well, found basic security, physical security flaws. The doors to the House and Senate chambers didn't lock properly. I mean, that's a pretty basic thing that should be checked, right? House and Senate chamber has always been a target of protesters, and 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 uh, and they didn't have the capability to lock the doors properly. There's an elevator that led to the, a very sensitive part of the Capitol, uh, the fourth floor, where House Armed Services and Intelligence and other important components are kept. Uh, the elevator wasn't secured that day. People could jump on it, and some of the rebel rousers did, and got to one of the most sensitive storage and component areas of the Capitol. They had, for years, built a riot squad. They call it a civil disturbance unit. Most of the members of that unit that day weren't ready for a riot, they were actually reassigned to other administrative and normal police duties. The ones that were ready to respond to the riot were extremely slow, according to the report. Why? Well, one reason was their gear was locked in a bus and nobody had a key for it. They couldn't get their gear. So a significant slowing of the one force that knows how to quickly de-escalate a, a riot. Now you get to intelligence, and there's a lengthy section on intelligence failures, and there are two extraordinary flaws. And the most sweeping statement of this entire report done by the Capitol Police is that um, the, the one thing that most likely contributed to the tragedy, is the word they used, was the decision by the new leadership in November of 2020. Remember, after the election, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are taking greater control. There are new leaders below the police chief installed. These new leaders uh, canceled an important part of the intelligence program, what's known as open source intelligence. You and I would call it social media monitoring. One of the fastest and surest ways that uh, intelligence agencies learn about potential political violence is by monitoring social media. The Capitol Police shut that unit down, according to this uh, review, and it kept the Capitol Police uh, rank and file, the commanders, the experts on the front lines, unaware that there was all this chatter on social media of violence uh, stewing, including talk of targeting members of Congress, talk of storming the building. They were blind to it. Now, some of the leaders did get a warning. They got that warning from the Norfolk, uh, Virginia, FBI office. It came in on the 5th of January, the day before. Very detailed, specific threats that members were going to be targeted, the Capitol might be stormed. Those uh, intelligence warnings came to certain leaders at the top of the department, not the chief, by the way, but people on the next tier down. They were not put into the operational plan, meaning the everyday commanders, all the unit chiefs, all the officers on the front line had no idea that there was a significant threat of violence. And that is what is mentioned in this report. We can go on. There are training failures. There are equipment failures. 
the police uh, couldn't even use the the riot squad uh, couldn't even use their radios appropriately to communicate with each other because the gas masks they wore didn't allow for a radio to come through. So in order to make a communication for help, they had to take their gas mask off, which put them at enormous risk because people were spraying noxious chemicals that day. It is a portrait of a Keystone cop uh, police force that significantly could have de-escalated or secured the Capitol and failed to do so with 53 serious violations of policy and security performance. So That's what, what the report finds. This is stunning. I mean, John, I'm sitting here, my jaw is dropping because this is like, you know, police 101. And especially when there was so much word that there was going to be protests. We know that there was yep. going to be the speech. I mean, everybody saw it. Everybody, you know, was all over the place. People were gathering on January 6th. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't a secret. What do we attribute this to? Is it, I mean, I hate to say it, is it ineptitude? Was it willful ignorance or, or what? why so bad? You know, it's a great question. And I, because of the way the January 6th investigation has been run, we've not been allowed to get the sort of answers that we need. You remember after 9-11, I did a lot of the reporting at the Associated Press that unveiled the failures of what the FBI and the CIA knew but didn't connect. They couldn't connect the dots. They had the whole plot and sitting in front of them. They couldn't connect it. And a lot of that ended up in the final 9-11 commission report, which was a bipartisan commission that really tried to make the FBI, the CIA, the intelligence community better. The January 6th commission has not been focused on trying to learn why the Capitol was so insecure, why a half-billion-dollar-a-year-funded police force failed so miserably. It is focused entirely on trying to show, as Adam Schiff just said in that clip, that Donald Trump wanted to foment the violence that day. They have one problem with their narrative, and I don't think they'll solve it with all the Hollywood glitz that they have on Thursday night with their primetime show. If Donald Trump wanted to foment violence at the Capitol, why two days earlier did he authorize the 20, uh, the, up to 20,000 National Guard troops to be deployed early to stop any violence? It doesn't make sense. Their argument falls apart on their own facts, much like the Russia collusion argument that Adam Schiff gave us five years ago. So they, they, they have focused their entire effort on damaging Trump and the Republicans on this, and almost none of their effort in looking at this. Most of the committees I talked to today said, we've never seen this report. It's the first time I've heard of this report. But, but you're doing investigation. We haven't seen this report at all. Over the next few days, I have 10,000 pages of documents from the Capitol Police, and we're going to put out a large part of these documents and these stories so people can see there's a bigger issue here, one that lives on after January 6th. The Capitol is not as secure as it should be. Wow, which is really, really scary. Now, what about um, the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, and what about Nancy Pelosi? Because you talked about this, um, you know, Trump deploying, putting out, setting that in motion as as you're reporting. Um, Didn't they institute it? Why? Why? I never understood why we have not gotten an answer from from those folks and they're not being called by this committee. One of the documents we will put out in the next 24, 48 hours is a letter written by the former Capitol Police Chief, Stephen Sun. He, he resigned a few days after this in shame because his department did fail at security. He admitted that. He wrote in this letter in February to the committees and to leadership that he repeatedly asked for National Guard to be deployed. So you have two different things going on. The police chief, who knows what the police needs, is asking for the National Guard. The president of the United States is voluntarily offering it. And the two people sitting in the middle that seem to turn it down based on the testimony that we can all now see and read are Nancy Pelosi's team, the House Sergeant-at-Arms, and the, the, the D.C. mayor. 
those are going to be significant flaws. And again, it, it's going to go back to this storyline that they want to have. Donald Trump is somehow the guy that wanted to foment violence on January 6th. Well, wait a second. He wanted to send the National Guard there, and Nancy Pelosi and her team said no. Uh, that storyline is not going to hold together the second the American people get these other facts. This letter from Chief Sund is a very powerful letter. It lays out the, the deafness, the um, arrogance of the mayor of the Capitol. Remember, the House Speaker is the mayor of the U.S. Capitol. It's her job for the uh, administrative staff to report up to her. She's basically in charge of the security and the administration of this great building. And uh, she has evaded all questions. She hasn't been called before the committee. Her text messages haven't been made public yet. So we don't know what she knew and what the people around her knew. But over the next few days, we're going to put out a lot of Capitol Police memos, text messages, emails, reports, and people are going to see that this police department was pleading for help and the mayor of the Capitol didn't deliver. Wow. And also, just as you said, even like basic things like the door and that elevator to the fourth floor. I mean, you know, you have a whole bunch of people coming. And to me, that's like 101. Um, you want to lock it down. You want to make sure you preserve. I mean, it's it's stunning that even some of the basic stuff wasn't done when the whole world knew there was going to be a big crowd there. I don't yep. you know, I mean, we haven't. I haven't seen that they expected, you know, the, the, you know, the breaching and all that other. But you already know a lot of people are coming. And that alone is, is a, is well, a formula for part. a disaster. Come on. There were, there were people, Rita, at the senior levels of the Capitol Police Department that were given warnings that there, could, there was likely to be violence. Not could be. Likely to be violence. Specific ideas that members were going to be targeted. We're going to put some of these documents out. They kept that. One of the things you see in the report tonight, and I, I put the report up so everybody can read the document separate of my, my own story. Uh, the leadership failed to tell its commanders. The leadership failed to tell its officers. The leadership failed to tell its riot patrol units that there was a likelihood of violence, that there was intelligence. And when, so when you FBI say, John, going, when you say yeah. leadership, you mean leadership of law enforcement, specifically yes. which leadership? It looks to be at the level below the chief. We know that Chief Sun said he never got these warnings. We know everybody in two layers down didn't get them. It appears to be the layer right below Chief Sun, the deputy chiefs and those sort of people that appear to have this information. The report's a little vague. It doesn't name the names of people who got it. But it states flatly that there were a small number of people who got these warnings, and they were told the Capitol may come under assault. The building may be breached. Members of Congress may be targeted. Those are three words that, if you're the Capitol Police, should set you in motion. Yeah. They set up an operational plan, which guides the entire large force of the Capitol Force. None of that gets in the memo. They don't tell their own people what's about to come. And that's why you have riot guards that can't find their gear. They weren't prepared for it. They thought nothing bad was going to happen. Their gear was locked up in a bus. Uh, why the doors weren't being checked, why the elevator wasn't secured. You know, if the NYPD had acted this way in 2021, after all we learned after 9-11, we would be calling for the police commissioner in the mayor's head. Here in Washington, we've given a parade for most of the police officers without really recognizing the strategic failures of a department that has a lot of resources. It gets $600 million a year. It is not an underfunded department. Wow. And also finding out why they didn't get the information. That, to me, is such a, like, who did somebody block it? That's the big question. Uh, I mean, that, to me, is like, it's like baffling. Um, wow. Very explosive. Everybody check it out, of course, on Just the News, also on all of John's social media stuff. 
the great John Solomon. And, John, keep us posted as you get other great explosive stuff. You always do such great work. Thank you so much, John. My pleasure. Thanks. Have a great night. Thank you. You too, my friend. Everybody, what do you think? one 800 848 Boy, is that explosive. And why would a very qualified police department not be ready with basic stuff? When you know there was going to be a huge protest, and why did they not get some of this information, or at least some of them not get some of this information? Was it withheld for a reason? And do you think any of this is going to come out in the committee pony show that we'll see later this week? 1-800-848-9222. This is the Rita Cosby Show. And you are listening to the Rita Cosby Show. You just heard that blockbuster report by John Solomon talking about the fact that there wasn't even like basic security on January 6th by the Capitol Hill police. And this week, even though they're going to be trouting a lot of people out, they don't seem to be bringing the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi or the mayor of D.C. There's a lot of holes that we will not hear about. And boy, uh, lots of still unanswered questions. But Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island, a Democrat, had this to say about the hearings that are going to take place later this week. There will be, I think, substantial evidence that, that really demonstrates the coordination and the planning and the effort Uh, despite the fact that they understood that Donald Trump lost the election. And even once the the insurrection began and the violence began, there there were ongoing efforts to persuade the former president to stop the violence and call on folks to go home, and he refused to do it. I think the American people are going to learn uh, facts about the planning and execution of this that will be very disturbing. So... Isn't this all about trying to put a dent in Donald Trump prior to the midterms, as opposed to talking about real facts? 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to Stan on line seven. Stan, your thoughts. As always, you're out of touch with reality in this particular situation. Oh, I am, Stan. Let, bring, oh, yeah, Stan, dear, Stan, one, Stan bring me, Venus. enlighten me with your wisdom, Stan, well, please. I listen to you all the time, and your wisdom is from the planet Venus, but uh, you're basically... Well, that, well, then you're from Mars, right? Okay, right? So let's get on the plane together. <laughs> let's get on the plane together and travel. You That's know? a deal, Stan. Okay, here's the point. This committee uh, hearing on Thursday, to me is probably one of the most important hearings of this country. Okay, we will learn, whether you like it or not, exactly, based on emails, based on testimony, what exactly happened that day. Okay, your friend Mr. Solomon can base it, try to put it all on the police. That ain't going to work. Okay, and you said about Donald Trump? Yeah, he was willing to sacrifice the vice president. He was willing to sacrifice anybody if they can turn those numbers. And so as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to listen very carefully, and I hope you listen very carefully. Oh, I, I will, Stan. Oh, Stan. I know. I, know you I will. will. You know I will. So, so when the time comes to call back, we'll both have different points of view, but I think this is one of the most important committee hearings of our time in this country. You may not agree. But it needs to be done. And there are two Republicans on it, whether you like that or not. I know that Burns, the the minority leader of the Congress, he should be there talking, but he doesn't want to. No, by by the way, he would have loved to have been on the committee, but they put 
two very, very much anti-Trumpers. So to me, that was pretty transparent. But I'll be watching it, Stan. I'm curious to see if they got anything or if it's all just one big show. Uh, Let's go to Michael in West Virginia. Michael, your thoughts. Uh, You agree with Stan or not? Well, I think Stan, he's got a lot to learn because, uh, you know, uh, if if you're going to have a committee, form a committee in Congress and not question the one and only in charge of security, Nancy Pelosi, what was it all about? Exactly, exactly, Michael. It is such a stilted committee. When we come back, we're going to talk about inflation and the economy, and I'll continue with your calls, everybody. Rita Cosby is on. The Rita Cosby Show presents Support Our Heroes. And in tonight's Support Our Heroes segment, where we honor the brave men and women in the military and, of course, their families, a segment that I love doing every night here on the show, a powerful story coming from Peoria, Illinois, where World War II veteran Ben Maurer celebrated his 98th birthday just recently. As seaman third class, Ben Moore fought alongside more than 300 others aboard the USS Hannah during World War II. He said, I didn't want to go into the Army and crawl around and get shot at. And he explained that's why he joined the Navy. In fact, he never left central Illinois before he was drafted. And right after boot camp, he was out to sea. He chose to work in radio communications aboard the ship And in nine months, he learned Morse code, indeed, the Navy's secret code to relay important messages. And now the World War II veteran Ben Moore is getting a once in a lifetime experience with his daughter. They shared it together on their mutual birthday. She said, Dad, you know what? Let's go to the nation's capital. Let's do it together. And they went on an honor flight. He said that he had never been there before, and it was such a powerful experience to see the amount of appreciation that America has given to those who have gone. And thank goodness that he was able to be celebrated and also be there with his daughter. Well, we all see the rising inflation numbers. Also, gas prices are skyrocketing. And companies are quickly finding ways to adjust and also weather the storm. Our next guest says it comes down to one word, automation. And joining us now is Ben Elmore. He is the CEO and he's also the managing partner at Intevity. Ben, it is great to have you here on the Rita Cosby Show. Oh, it's great to be here. You know, Ben, you founded Intevity um, back in 2003, so you've seen a lot of waves in the business arena. Um, You know, it's a company It's focused on making strategy and technology better, obviously a huge key arena. How do you rate, first of all, sort of the economic and business climate? Because you've seen a lot of of waves in the years since 2003. Yeah, uh, I say, unfortunately or fortunately, I've been in on both the good years and the and the uh, bust years. And I think what we're seeing is is um, is some real economic headwinds that org- that companies are facing right now. 
you know, you have a combination of, of severe labor, labor shortage, you have rising inflation, but you also have this continual high expectations from customers that you have to be able to service and service well. How is technology playing, obviously, a key role? There's so much discussion, of course, on technology and, um, and also the word automation. Yeah, so, you know, technology is such an important part of an organization's strategy. Um, in, in the good years, technology tends to be put uh, squarely on how do, I, how do I acquire new customers? How do I grow? And grow in some cases at all costs. But what we're starting to see is this, is this as we start to head in this economic uh, headwind, is to say, how does technology actually help me be more effective and efficient? And to do that, you have to start to think about it through the lens of automation. You know, so how do I go ahead and think about what are the parts of my business that are highly repetitive that I can leverage technology to be able to solve so that I can make sure that my workforce is focused on the most important thing, which is really meeting my customers' needs and servicing them well. You know, um, Ben Elmore, of course, who is the head of Intevity, we're talking here on the Rita Cosby Show about inflation and the economy and automation. It seems there's a big move, obviously, towards technology and automation. Um, before, it was always the big companies. Um, but you're seeing what kind of a trend of smaller and mid-market. Tell us about that. Yeah, like, you know, mid-market, you know, mid-America really feels the, 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 the swings in the market. Um, many times they feel it first. And so when I'm meeting, working with a lot of uh, our mid-sized businesses that, we, that we're coming alongside to support, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about this, uh, you know, this, the, the challenges they're, that they're feeling. You know, the supply chain has, has sort of been really difficult for them to master, which means that they tend to carry a bit more uh, and a bit larger inventories that they're looking to do. They're having a labor, the labor shortages from just a really tight labor market. And so we're sitting with them and saying, you know, how do we, how do we deploy technology? How do we deploy automation? So what you're seeing is is leveraging technology uh, to be able to go ahead and say, like, how do I provide online bill, bill paying for my customers? How do I think about giving customer portals to be able to give them real-time insights into what inventory I have available to them? And so this idea of, of automating that allows a customer from a self-service perspective and allow my sales team and also allow my floor management supervisors to be more effective is the way that there's, the way that we're working together to say, like, how do we combat this inflationary pressure that they're seeing? How has the pandemic, because so many folks have become much more tech savvy due to COVID, they just had to, they had to learn the new tricks and many of those have carried over. Yeah, the pandemic has had a really interesting effect on businesses because now people are expecting access to information and access to products and and services and a moment's notice. So before the pandemic, this, this idea of, of being able to have in-home delivery, for example, was one of those things that was a nice to have but not always expected. Now businesses are being, are being ta- tasked with and challenged to say you have to provide that as a minimum because in a tight economic market, it's not simply this price that wins. It's about how you, it's who serves their customers the best. And the pandemic has really set a really high bar and expectation that these organizations, these, these, this, these um, mid-sized companies are having to live up to. And they can't do that just by simply hiring because of the cost of that. They have to look at this through by saying through successful and smart deployment of technology and automation. How much also has technology become much more cool, if you will? I mean, you see all the different headlines of the who's who getting involved. Um, You know, Elon Musk talking about buying Twitter. Um, How much has that also helped in terms of the, the technology and automation trend? 
<laughs> yeah, you, you look at the um, the headlines today, and, and you definitely see you know this the rise of crypto and NFTs and all this new technology that's coming out. You sort of see these, uh, the, as you said, the who's who that are that are weighing into this because they recognize that when technology is done well, it creates tremendous value for for organizations, and in that value for organizations is also this really great return that they can get. So you have really smart investors that are saying investments into technology plays are giving me the best returns that we've ever seen. And then you have a lot of speculative, you know, um, or experimental money going in there. And people are saying, man, technology is sort of is reimagining so much of the way that uh, the world could work. And so you get this real interesting aspect of really experimental mixed with just a real heavy focus on on, on core fundamentals and core value creation. And also, what about ownership of your own data? I mean, where are we at in terms of, do you see that in the future where people can basically control their own data? Right now, a lot of people don't feel they have that. I mean, that's such a great point today. I think that, you know, we think about what technology has done over the last decade is, is create just a, an enormous uh, amount of data that's out there. And so there, what we're having to wrestle with is this idea of, of data privacy and about who actually owns the information that um, is created by these applications that we all become really dependent upon. And, and I do see a time where we're, we are going to have to be able to put some good, um, uh, good discussions and good regulations around who, you know, ownership through and the ability for me to be able to hand ownership to you through permission. And, and, and if I'm doing that, I should be expecting something deep in return for that one. And so I tend to find that organizations need to have, you know, active dialogue with their customers to say, if you entrust me with your information, A, we're going to protect it, but B, we're going to give you a greater service by really allowing us to personalize and individualize the care, you know, the way that I, the way that I service you as a customer. You know, and finally, one of the things that I love about your background, Ben, is that you have your your values right. You care about family. You care about faith. How important is that that you translate that in your business too, and that more people do that too as well? Yeah, like uh, that family and faith are just a really an important part of of my life, and I find that it's important that what we do at the heart of that, which is like you know, heart of, of faith and family, is, is the love that we have for one another. In businesses, when we translate into business, you know, love can be a really soft and squishy word. But really, what I say is like businesses need to look at their employees and look at their customers as someone that they need to care for and serve and serve well. And if you sort of allow that to be a guiding principle, what you do is you start to build that loyalty of your team and the loyalty for your, your, your customers. But it's also one of the things you can't fake. You have to really sort of say that this needs to be something that's just who we are and it's something that we inspire to do. And so those two parts have really just seeped into who I am as a, you know, as a leader and, or who I aspire to be as a leader in, in the way that we inspire to lead, lead our company. Well, you have inspired me, and I think uh, more companies need those kind of values, especially right now as you talk about with streamlining and so many other things, to stay true to your base and what really matters is great. Uh, Ben Elmore, love having you here on the show. Such an important message and some great ideas for individuals and companies out there listening, the CEO and managing partner at Intevity. Thanks so much for being here on the show. Thank you, Rita. And everybody, let's go to your calls. By the way, some of the new polls on uh, Biden and inflation. Boy, is he tanking on that one. Uh, 28% are approving of his job performance on inflation. 28% approve. 
That is really bad. That is in the Jimmy Carter territory. And the report that the president doesn't like to be compared to Jimmy Carter. I can understand why. 1-800-848-9222. Let's go to your calls. We're talking about that. We've obviously been talking with John Solomon about his report about security tied to January 6th and so much more. Uh, let's go to Mark, line six. Mark, uh, your thoughts about what John Solomon was talking about, also even Biden's job performance, too. All's on the table tonight. Go ahead. Hi, Rita. I think you're fabulous. I love listening to you. And hearing John Solomon, I was captivated by that. I was at January 6th. I, I, I was invited by the president, and I was there for a good part of the day, and I had the experience of walking from the ellipse after the president's speech, a nice slow walk, to uh, where uh, where the inauguration was going to be performed in that vicinity. And the biggest impression, that I, well, there were two of the biggest impressions that I had was, and it was only touched very lightly when you were speaking to John Solomon, you did mention it, the enormity of the crowd. And I, I tried to capture that by lifting my cell phone. And from between the White House and the ellipse, you could not see the horizon was filled with people. You could not see the perimeter of the crowd there. It was absolutely impressively uh, enormous. What, what do you and, make of the fact, Mark, because you were there um, and you saw how big the crowd was, that according to John's report, there were just so many. And obviously, based on what you know, the results were, too, that that people got in so quickly, there seemed to be so many major security mistakes and John kind of used the phrase, I was thinking the same thing, of like sort of keystone cops, which seems almost unbelievable, knowing there was going to be a big crowd. I mean, all you had to do was watch the news. It wasn't like you needed a tip. Um, it's well, just it's, odd that there were not these security steps just for a standard crowd coming to the Capitol, no matter what. The following day, I wrote out a report and documented the timeline of my photos and my route. And when I was approaching where the inauguration was, and this was um, um, uh, what struck me is approaching that area where the inauguration, there were towers set up and there were bleachers and everything. And from, from a distance, as I approached that, I could see the tower. There was about four sections of scaffolding. And I observed that there were people that were on top of the scaffolding with flags and stuff. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you know they don't belong up there. How how did they get up there? What are they doing there? How could how how could this be happening? And then I got uh, closer, and my first observation was the enormity of the crowd and the egregious. I didn't see security there. I saw like first I saw two or three, or and then I saw six, and then I saw for the, for the crowd size there. It was like it was criminal in terms of the way that place was was being manned. Well, and, that, after- and that's what's so stunning, Mark. Like, we still don't know why was there not the National Guard there? Why was there not even the basic stuff where they had, the, like John was saying, they had even trouble getting into the bus to get, like, you know, some of their, like, you know, gas masks or other things. I mean, it's like, this is, again, this is like, you know, uh, protesting 101. 
You know, even if it was even if it was a bunch of grandmothers, you know, you know, if it was five thousand grandmothers, I would have had more security. You know, if you had a a rock concert with uh, with uh, with a with a big band there, and you and and you were expecting a crowd there, you would have had more security than that than than existed here. And this crowd was you couldn't see the beginning or the end of it. Well, now let me ask you, Mark, do you think we're going to hear any of this in the dog and pony show starting on Thursday night? I don't think you're going to hear that. And interestingly enough, you know, I heard people talking about it. And this is one of the first things I'd mentioned, the size of the crowd there. And then I went online myself the next day to to, to see what it was because I, I didn't really know how to calculate it. But I can tell you that it was completely to the horizon, the crowd. And and going online, I wanted to get some I, – I couldn't get anything online that was giving me an idea other than there was original licensure, 30,000 people expected, which was completely re- ridiculous. But, but Mark, and, I and, contend even if it was 3,000 grandmothers, it's right around the Capitol that, you know, if it was a bunch of grandmothers in wheelchairs, I still think there should have been more security. That's what's so amazing. Mark, thank you. Really interesting to hear your perspective. Let's go to Ed, line one. Ed, your thoughts about that? Hi, my Danish Polish sister. Uh, my thoughts: I was there, and uh, I saw two high-ranking police officers walk past, just looking at the crowd. A lawyer standing next to me said, "The Capitol Police aren't big fans of Trump. Neither is the mayor." Well, that's that's pretty obvious. At least the mayor part is for sure. You know, right, right. And I heard him say, "Go peacefully." And patriotically and support the process. But you're not going to hear that this weekend. You're going to hear that he's the world's worst. And you're going to hear how Adam Schiff, even though he messed up everything on Russia, that he's going to get to the bottom of this one, you know? I can't watch it, Rita. I only know that we didn't go to the Capitol. We went back to the hotel, had a burger and a beer, and we saw it. And we got a text that they were singing... Uh, amazing grace. We could have went and sung that, but it was too cold. So that's what was going on on one side of the Capitol. They were, the crowd was singing amazing grace. Well, that's interesting to get that perspective, because I think we're going to hear a lot of more amazing facts from the Democrats or what they construe as facts uh, later this week. Ed, really interesting. Great to get your perspective. We'll continue with your calls, everybody. 1-800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. It's the Rita Cosby Show. And it, of course, is a big primary night in seven states. By the way, a number of folks who Trump has been very closely aligned with, John Thune of South Dakota, uh, handily won his primary for Senate. And also Kirsty Noem, the governor of South Dakota, who is running again, handily won her primary tonight. So lots of big Trump supporters. Also, Iowa, Senator Grassley handily winning his primary for Senate, uh, the longtime senior senator there in Iowa, handily winning his. Um, and we're waiting to see what happens with Chesa Bodine. This is the Looney Kazuni, uh, soft on crime DA in San Francisco, who many people feel has basically brought San Francisco to the toilet and then flushed it five times because. He has been so soft on criminals there, and even many of the Democrats there, like the Democratic mayor, has been frustrated with some of the policies of the DA. 
And so much so that that heavily Democratic city has pushed for a recall vote. And the recall vote for him is tonight. The polls just closed a little bit ago. Um, and as soon as we get any results, we'll bring them to you. And, of course, we'll talk about that tomorrow on the show. Because if he gets recalled, this guy, this is the San Francisco district attorney, that would be an astounding, astounding development because it's a heavily Democratic city. And if the mainly Democratic city, they got enough to put it for a vote, you had to get like 500,000 almost basically uh, petition signatures to be able to put it on the ballot to make it a vote. So it's historic that they're actually doing this vote tonight. But he could actually get booted tonight from office, and that could send a chilling effect to not just him, of course, but to so many other of these soft-on-crime DAs around the country. I mean, we have heard so many different mayors express frustration about the fact that a lot of these DAs and judges have been basically creating a revolving door for criminals. You know, like, you know, in L.A., for example, you know, Alex Villanueva, the sheriff there, his team is busting these guys. And guess what? Then Gascon, who's basically uh, the equivalent of Chesa Boudin in L.A., well, then he puts them back out on the street. He gives them basically a little slap on the wrist. So, boy, would this be a huge development if in San Francisco it happens. And then we see maybe Gascon, because there's an effort there, a second recall effort there to try to get rid of him. But there are now potentially would basically put so many of these other soft on crime DAs around the country on notice. So that is probably one of the biggest, biggest races tonight, as this is a huge primary night again in seven different states. But everybody is waiting to see, could San Franciscans, Democrats, vote him out? Could he get the boot? And so far, just about less than half of the vote is in, about 45% is in. And 61% of the vote, again, it's just 45% of the vote, but it could be a foreboding sign that Chesa Boudin could indeed get kicked out. But 61% with just, again, less than half percent of the half of the votes in. Uh, but a lot of those are absentee ballots, too. And that's kind of in the polls. If you look at the polls, the polls were basically showing that primarily he will get booted out. You never know what happens on voting day. But so far, the early results are consistent with some of the polls. And this could send a tidal wave to soft on crime DAs across the country. Let's hope they boot him out. That guy stinks. And he has really driven San Francisco badly into crime, given a soft-on-crime approach, a light-bait tap on the wrist to criminals. And there are so many homeless. There's homeless encampments all over the place where they're doing drugs. And it has just been a haven for crime. And a lot of people blame it on Chesa Boudin. And by the way, he keeps getting grilled over and over again about his policies. And he keeps defending them. He's like, no, I stand by what I did. We just need more time. Guess what? You don't need more time when crime is skyrocketing. San Francisco, the crime rate is up for violent crime almost 10% under this guy. How much more does San Francisco and other cities across the country have to take? We're definitely going to be talking about that tomorrow night. Let's hope they boot this guy.
This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 